welcome to the Actual Astronomy Podcast, episode number 39. In this episode, we're going to talk about the Summer Triangle and the Perseid Meteor Shower. How are you this afternoon, Shane? I am pretty good. How about yourself? I'm doing really, really well. I know I'm kind of, kind of, I've been texting you a pile of photos. <laughs> yeah. I didn't mean to overwhelm your, your Sunday brunch or sleeping or whatever with, oh my God, another photo from Chris. Um, but uh I think you were looking for some photos maybe to put up on our YouTube feed. So I wanted to make sure I, I gave you, uh, gave you lots or to send tweets out or, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I like to, if possible, I like to send some uh, photos out over Twitter that relate to things we're talking about on the podcast. So if anybody wants a visual, they can go there and check it out. I, I, I have refrained from doing the, cause I'm, I get up to observe. Now I get up this morning, even though I was pretty sure it wasn't going to be observing conditions, I still get up and check because um, mm-hmm. I'm trying to, to do a pretty good run on Mars and Venus uh, while they're both very high in the sky. And this is, this is going to go on here for, for at least another uh, four weeks. And I was going to, I was going to send you a text at, at four thirty. <laughs> well, you can, my, my phone's on do not disturb at that time. <laughs> okay. Good stuff. Good stuff. So Anyway, I, I, I won't do that anyway. I think that's, that's in, generally in poor taste, but uh, you know, it, it really is uh, a really good season for, for doing astronomy. And um, as such, uh, and the university wanted me to, I'm, I'm actually teaching my astronomy class. And uh, one of the things we're going to do this week is the summer triangle and talk about the Perseid uh, meteor shower. So in an effort to kind of kill two birds with one stone, I, I really hope you don't mind me doing this. I kind of kind of sent you the uh, the text this morning and said, can we please do it on these so that I don't have to create um, more and more and more material every week for a whole slew of different topics. And then what I'll do is I'll turn these two into uh, into part of my my presentation this week. So thank you for indulging me. Oh yeah, I think it's great. Uh, I'm excited to do it. Yeah, so the Summer Triangle, Shane, and, and the other, in fact, a good portion of the reason why I wanted to do the Summer Triangle is that um, most people don't realize that about uh, 40% of the astronomers that get lost in space get lost in the Summer Triangle. That's an accurate statistic, isn't it? Yeah, um, it's been validated many times. <laughs> I think it was, it was funny because I had, I think I, I messaged or emailed or texted you this as, as a bit of a joke this week. And you were like, I think your, your spouse had made an almost identical comment. <laughs> she did, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was, I was showing her the, the summer triangle and, and she asked, is that where the astronomers get lost? And, <laughs> <laughs> and then like three days later, you get this text from me and you're like, man, I'm getting it from all sides. You know? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's, that's pretty amazing. Um, but the great part about the Summer Triangle is actually this is where uh, astronomers get found. Like this is really where you find your bearings uh, in the nighttime sky. So it's kind of like the, uh, the opposite of, of getting lost in space. This is where we kind of kind of get, get found in space. And uh, so what, what is the Summer Triangle? Maybe we'll start, maybe we'll start at that point. Well, it's, um, I, it's three of the brightest stars in the summer sky that form uh, a fairly easy to identify triangle, which is also a big chunk of the sky. It's huge. And then, yeah. And then once you identify it, it really helps you navigate to a lot of other constellations in the summer sky. So it's, uh, it's easy to find once you, when, like once you become aware of it, and then it's a really good navigational aid after that. And it's, it's not a constellation, though. Is it? No, no. It would be what we call an asterism, which mm-hmm. can be a little confusing. Um, you know, I, I think the, the best example of uh, asterism, or maybe not the best example, but a, a common one that I think some people can wrap their heads around. Uh, there's Ursa Major, which is the bear or the constellation of a bear. However, most people know a part of that constellation as the Big Dipper. Mm-hmm. Now, the Big Dipper is the asterism. The constellation is Ursa Major, the bear. Um, so usually the asterisms form some combination of really bright stars and some sort of recognizable 
object like a dipper or the Sagittarius teapot, um, you know, and, mm-hmm. and then what we're talking about today, the summer triangle. The, and I think that's a perfect way of just, you, you often you, you say like, I, I make some notes, but you said this way better than the way I have it in my <laughs> notes. I just want to, I just want to make that comment clear for people is Sheen's really talking off the top of his head, maybe a little bit more than I am. And that was really awesome. The only thing that I will just add to that um, is that the asterisms are really like the star patterns and the constellations are the regions. Maybe this is the... Mm. An, yeah, that's a good way, way to put it. Yeah, yeah kind of just to, to sort of condense it uh, down a little bit. But, uh, but yeah, I really, really like the way that you, that you put that. So one thing I'm, I looked at today, you know, I'm, I'm interested in the history of things a little bit. So I kind of was thinking, okay, well, how far back does this thing go? And then I saw that H.A. Ray. Now, H.A. Do you know who H.A. Ray was? I do not. So, yeah, I think you're just like about maybe a couple years younger than me, like literally. And when I was young, and and I know because my wife was about the same period younger than me, and she's not as familiar with H.A. Ray. H.A. Ray was huge. But I think I was sort of at the tail end of the H.A. Ray phenomena. And he was like maybe the Barney of of a time and he wrote the curious George books. Oh, really? (laughs) Yes. He wrote the curious George books and that's what he's most known for. But H.A. Ray was also an amateur astronomer and he wrote a book and I I forget the name of the book. I I should have it here. I actually have the book. It's downstairs in my library. My library is upstairs anymore. Uh, But he wrote a book on the constellations. So if you Google H.A. Ray constellation book, and he, he, in many ways, is responsible for revolutionizing the way that amateur astronomers, uh, people that actually go out and do stargazing, interpret the star patterns. Now, he didn't, um, you know, the, they may not be as widely accepted, but just his general uh, transformation of those star patterns, he made them look perhaps a little bit more like what they're supposed to uh, or in the absence of that, figures that are a little bit more easy to uh, wrap your head around. Um, and so I, I think that prior to that, the constellations were still very much esoteric or exclusive uh, to those mythological features um, with some very inconsistent lines drawn, whereas after H.A. Ray, the lines have become uh, more consistent and even more basic. But he's the one that really kind of started that that transformational uh, process. Um, so he had written about that, as, as had Patrick Moore, the uh, famous uh, British astronomer back in, uh, in the 50s. Um, but going back even further, in the early 1800s, Bode, um, perhaps in, in Western cultures, is the first that connected the three stars of Deneb, Vega, and Altair. Um, but he didn't write about them. And Bode, of course, is, is famous uh, as the early 1800s astronomer for, for Bode's Nebula, which are M81 and M82, as, as I think you'll, you'll probably recall, Shane. Mm-hmm. Yep. So he was, he was an early astronomer who, uh, who was making some discoveries. But that's only just in the Western culture. We, we only go back maybe a couple hundred years, say maybe, maybe just over 200 years. But uh, Chinese stargazers, uh, they've been connecting these stars um, for over two and a half centuries, <laughs> so goes goes back pretty far. They were using these as uh, as sort of celestial uh, storytelling features. And in fact, and if if I'm correct in, in what I've read about uh, Chinese astronomy and astrology, the really neat part that's that's quite different about the uh, Chinese astronomy and astrology, apart from some of the more Western. Uh, astronomy that we're familiar with is that they would more frequently use a larger pattern and then break it down into smaller patterns or constellations, which I think is actually an easier way to learn the night sky. And that's exactly what we're doing with the summer triangle. Huh. So, so they sort of larger regions uh, to make it easier to navigate and find various things in the sky. Is that the purpose for it? Yeah. So for example, and now I'm not going to try to go in and tell the, the, the stories um, 
from, from a Chinese perspective. I, I just don't understand them as well as, as I probably ought to. But um, for example, we have Cygnus, Lyra, and Altair that form the primary three constellations uh, in the summer triangle, the, the three bright stars, um, the brightest stars in each of those, and they form this giant triangle. But in the middle, we have uh, Volpecula and Sagitta, Delphinus to one side, and then just below uh, Scutum. So, and then in amongst those, we have our, our deep sky objects like Albireo, which is a nice double star. We have M57, which is the ring nebula. And, and by finding that larger feature, and depending on the equipment one has, you can gradually drill down. And I, I think that this harkens back to what um, the early Chinese astronomers were, were trying to do. Or, or successfully doing, they were they were taking a large piece of sky um, that that is much easier to find and easier to navigate, and then breaking it down into uh, you know manageable parts or more focused parts. And that's kind of what we're doing here. We're taking the summer triangle, and then we're breaking it down into the uh, constituent constellations. And then within those, there's some deep sky objects. So we're kind of using that that same sort of tried and true uh, technique. Uh, that, that goes back for, for now thousands of years. It's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, very neat. So one of the great things about the Summer Triangle is that the Milky Way cuts right through it. So even from the city, if you can find it, you can point a telescope or binoculars at it. And if your city's not, not too big and bright, like, like ours isn't that big a city, uh, you can point your binoculars up there and... Uh, and see, uh, you know, maybe some of the star clouds that you can't see with the unaided eye. Do you ever, do you ever do that from your driveway or backyard? I think your backyard's darker than mine. Yeah, I have panned through there with binoculars and uh, even occasionally a telescope. I'll just go through there and it's a noticeable increase in the density of the stars uh, when you're panning through that Milky Way region. Mm -hmm. And, and I, of, I, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I, I kind of like panning around in that Cygnus area. You know, I, I look, I, I, you know, Albireo might be one of my most frequented objects in the sky. I, I look at it quite regularly. And then from there, I just kind of work my way up the cross. And uh, there's so many little clusters uh, to look at in that area. It's, it's a fun part of the sky. So when is it best to view the summer triangle? I always feel like the summer triangle is a little bit of a misnomer because you think when summer rolls around that that's when it's going to be at its best, but when is it really at its best? It's kind of a little bit later in the year, I think, isn't it? Well, later, or, or I'd even say maybe earlier, like for me, what I hate to observe is things that are right overhead or near Zenith. Okay. And right now, you know, depending, I guess when you're out, but like if I'm out around 10 or 11 o'clock, the summer triangle is directly overhead and mm -hmm. that's just a, a difficult place to observe in the sky. Yeah, you're right. Cause you, if you're dealing with the Dobsonian telescopes, you're dealing with something called Dobson's hole or it is just very difficult to look straight up overhead. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. But later in the year, or like I said, even a little bit earlier in the year as it's um, rising, like as it's spring, rising. Yeah. 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 You can get some decent views or later in the year, it'll be, you know, starting to set a little bit and it won't be overhead. Yeah, kind of sort of building on that, and I guess maybe what I was hinting towards is that uh, I do find kind of as we get into the latter part of August and into the autumn time frame, it's really nicely situated in the uh, sort of high in the western sky, but you can still see the whole thing. And then it just kind of seems to sit there for weeks on end as it, as it gets darker earlier each night. It seems like it's getting darker at about the same rate uh, each night that the... Uh, constellations would have shifted to the east. So you go out at eight o'clock one night and you can look up and see the uh, summer triangle there. Now, let's say it just got dark at eight o'clock or dark enough that you go and look, you come out the next night, well, it's going to be that dark at about uh, three or four minutes to eight, but those constellations will be virtually in the same spot, less plus or minus a few arc minutes. Then of course, once we kind of get so far along, they seem to sort of speed up of course they don't but just kind of the way things work yeah yeah no that's a great point um later in the summer uh, due to the darkness um would be a much better time and if you really are under some dark skies uh there is some outstanding stuff in that region to see so what are some of the big things that maybe you'd like to go and take a look at 
up in the summer triangle region uh you know when you go to do to do observing from a dark side chain uh, the North American Nebula is probably at the top of the list. Um, that's not an easy nebula to observe visually. You do mm-hmm. need really dark skies. And when we go down to Grasslands National Park, we uh, are fortunate to have some of the darkest skies available. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've talked about it before on previous podcasts, how, you know, there's a lot of different names for these objects. And I feel like a lot of the objects don't live up to the name however the north american nebula does you know like when you see that it's like oh yeah there's there's kind of canada and the u.s and you see florida and the gulf and it just yeah it really makes sense that that's the that's north america there and and right beside it is the pelican right beside the north american is the pelican nebula which doesn't quite look like a pelican through the uh through the small telescope no no, no. So yeah, I love that. Um, that coat hanger cluster. Um, now you don't need a dark sky for that. You can actually see that from within the city. Um, yeah. It's not, that's also an asterism. We talked about asterisms earlier. It's yes. not, those stars, I don't believe are associated. There is a cluster in there somewhere, but yeah, um, yeah. the coat hanger cluster itself, uh, which is uh, index catalog, I think 399 or call, no, sorry, colander 399 is the official catalog after a per colander from the early 1900s yeah and that's another arrangement of stars that it, it looks like its name it does look like a coat hanger although i think it's upside down probably at that point in the year yeah, yeah I, I think yeah. i think you're right yeah through through the through the uh, instruments you're going to see it as upside down um you know that is now it's not an it's not technically a set of associated stars, but it's still an object and it's an object that's really cool to look at. So I think that makes it something. And you know, yeah. that was first observed in, uh, in around 964 AD by a uh, Persian astronomer, Al Sufi. Hmm. That's interesting. So it goes, it goes way, way back. And it just shows like, I can kind of see it as a fuzzy spot and I can kind of make out the stars knowing where to look. Um, you know, but, considering he was somebody and I wear glasses, um, but he was somebody who probably wouldn't, wouldn't have had glasses or unlikely. And, uh, and he was, uh, you know, observing of course, without any, any advanced knowledge of, of telescopes or that the object was even there, he discovered it. So uh, wow, that's pretty, incredible. Yeah. Pretty fascinating. What, uh, what some people like him and uh, Tico Brahe and, and others have, have been able to do with, without an instrument. Yeah. Yeah. One other object I'll mention up there uh, is the Ring Nebula, mm-hmm. uh, associated within Lyra. It's it looks like a donut in the sky, and it's a nebula that um, really shows well in just about any type of telescope. The larger aperture ones make it look a lot nicer or easier to see, kind of the donut effect of it. Um, but that's a common object that when we're doing public outreach and people are looking through our telescopes. Um, I'll often show them the ring at some point in the evening. Mm-hmm. Now, what is the ring nebula exactly? Uh, that is a planetary nebula, if I'm not it mistaken. Is. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a planetary. Yeah, so that star, uh, I, don't know, I don't know the history in terms of timing, but it went supernova at some point. Not meaning... quite supernova, I don't nope. think. Oh, no, okay, okay. No, those ones will just, they kind of just puff up and give up their outer atmosphere. And then that drifts off in, into space and it forms. That's why you get the, the ring. Now, I think, and, you know, we're doing this kind of live. We don't do any edits or anything like that. And we've, uh, you know, we've got veil supernova remnant right beside this. And it's the veil that was caused by a giant uh, supernova that, mm. that went off. Um, maybe even around the same time. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, what's kind of neat about the, the ring is that um, it, it seems to be, uh, I wouldn't say like light pollution proof, but it, it's more resilient to it's very bright, light pollution. Eh? Yeah, it is mm-hmm. very bright. And um, yeah, just a neat object to, to show folks. But probably the showpiece in that area is, is the veil. Um, would you agree with that? 
the, the, yeah, from a dark sky, I mean, the, the, the veil supernova remnant is quite amazing. I, I think you really got to get to the, uh, to the, the medium sized telescope, something bigger than about a four inch or larger. Like I've observed it with my, and sketched it with my 60. Um, but when I've had my 60 on it, I've tried to show it to people, even from really good sites, it's tough. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, huge too, which yeah, is why large, the 60 yeah. millimeter, it's nice to look at through a smaller aperture like that because you yep. get a much wider field of view, but I've looked at it through a 20 inch Dobsonian and oh my gosh, it is almost photographic. You know, you see the, the wispiness and, and a lot of that structure and detail within it. Mm -hmm. The only problem is you, you have to pan an awful lot to see the whole nebula through such a large telescope because you're, you know, your field of view is the size of a pinhead. <laughs> yeah. I, I think one of the best views and one of the reasons why I bought a, a four inch or five inch telescope is I think the around the five inch is, is sort of the uh, best size for getting uh, most or a significant portion of, of the veil in the field of view and you get the right sizing with the right brightness. Um, once you go much smaller, it gets dim really fast. Once you go much larger, the field of view starts, in my opinion, to get too small too quick. So there is a bit of a, a nice, but with an eight inch Dobsonian, like many people would have, that's a nice instrument to look at it with, I think. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I used to have an eight inch Dobsonian and I looked at uh, the Veil Nebula many times and it was outstanding. Mm -hmm. I really, I really enjoyed those views. Yeah, what Oh, sorry. I was, I was going to ask you, what objects uh, do you like up there? Or do we? Well, you mentioned, them? you mentioned Alberio and then there's Epsilon there. Which one's the double double? They call it the double double because it's like two sets of two stars or something. Yeah. Up in Lyra, that's uh, Epsilon A and B, I think they call okay. it. Okay. Yeah. All right. And it's commonly referred to as, as the double double, right? Yeah, yeah, because in one field of view, um, it starts off as, you know, like if you're lower magnification, you'll see two stars that are both white and, and essentially the same magnitude. If you apply more magnification, you'll find out that both of those stars are in fact double stars and the companions are also identical. <laughs> so you have like two sets of twins essentially that, you know, they, are, they both look like each other. It's, it's a really neat object or I guess two objects to observe. Yeah. Now, recently, I was I was talking to another uh, observer, and they were saying that the the double double goes well with the uh, donut of the. Oh yes, yes. Uh, all Canadians will understand that. <laughs> so, so here here in Canada, double double is um, sort of common vernacular for how many people who like lots of cream and sugar order their coffee at a certain uh, establishment. <laughs> yes. Yes. Which it, the. Oh, which, I, which I, I don't care for as much. Personally, I'm more of a black coffee fan myself. I'm with you on that one. Yeah. The double-double the uh, in Lyra is sometimes a good test of seeing. If you can't split those, um, seeing isn't that good. But mm -hmm. um, And this takes experience. And that's probably why when you're out, and you can observe uh, the double-double from within a city, always take a quick look at it so you get familiar with how it looks under different magnifications. And then you can use that as a little bit of a gauge to see how good the seeing is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. Um, my favorite object, though, one of my favorite objects, there, I, do, I do like the veil. I like, I like the North American. Uh, the North American is, is a star from the region right beside Deneb uh, that we were talking about. But kind of between and, and sort of closer to, to Deneb, and running down, uh, not quite as far uh, to the Vale, is um, the Northern Colsack, which is a, a dark nebula complex. Uh, and that's pretty neat. And then just above or just northwest is this really neat uh, dark nebula, and it's called Le Gentil 3. And the reason why I like that nebula, it's dark, so it's one of the one of the things that kind of makes it look like the Milky Way is split in two, which I think is really neat. Most people who go out and see the Milky Way will, will recognize it as this giant uh, end of clouds, um, which is broken in places by um, something. But then with a little bit of knowledge, you can understand that these are some dark nebula and these dark nebula are the building blocks uh, 
uh, for some of the uh, later star form regions in, in the life cycle of stars. Um, but Le Gentil uh, 3, um, to me anyway, it, it often takes on a slightly different cast and it doesn't show in images. I'm just looking. Um, but I think to me anyway, it looks almost purplish. And the reason why is that I think it's got some uh, star features uh, and like thin stars uh, sort of spread over it. And for whatever reason, that must be like blue giants or maybe it's part of the light absorbing of Le Gentil 3. And it, it does almost have like a purpley or it's definitely different than the Northern Coal Sack, which is uh, like a dark region. And then also right in the middle of Cygnus, um, there's a brighter region, which is the uh, Cygnus star cloud. Um, which I like looking at uh, an awful lot. It's it's quite neat to look at. Right around, I think it's Seder, which is the, the middle star running down to uh, Albirio uh, at the end of, of the cross uh, asterism. Yeah, very interesting. Would, would you need uh, very dark skies to see uh, those dark nebula or moderately dark? Fairly dark, yeah. Sort yeah. of on, definitely on the darker end of the spectrum, but you don't really need any uh, optics to to take a look at these. Uh, you just kind of you can Google them and see kind of where they are generally. And it, as long as you can find the Cygnus constellation, which looks like a large uh, cross, you can probably locate those. Uh, binoculars can be fun to kind of sweep, but beyond like a very small, basic, inexpensive, simple pair of binoculars, you don't need any kind of fancy uh, equipment to to look at them with. So uh, that's always quite quite enjoyable. Right on. Yeah. So do you have anything else left to add? Oh, the, the summer triangle points down to the south uh, at this time of year. And the top part, like you said, it's Vega, I think, is pretty close to the zenith, which is the uh, point directly overhead once it gets dark these nights. So um, even though I know you were saying it can be difficult to look straight up, uh, definitely uh, there are more comfortable times of the year. The fact that Vega is so close to the zenith, at least for us, um, so if you're in North, North America or in the Northern Hemisphere, um, Vega is going to be pretty close either to the zenith or, or getting pretty far, far towards the overhead region. Um, you can kind of trace out uh, the, the summer triangle pretty good. And then the Milky Way cuts through it and it points south. So you can kind of keep going from, from there and get to the south. So do you have anything else to add about the, the summer triangle or that region of sky? No, no, nothing else. Uh, that was a good discussion. Hmm. Well, why don't we move along to talk about the Perseid meteor shower? How does that sound? Shane, yeah. when, did you, when did you first watch or start watching or what's your first recollection of seeing the Perseid meteor shower? Well, yeah, I can't remember. I would have been, I think, 18 or 19 and uh, was just out with some friends in the evening and you know I can't even remember if if somebody else looked up or I looked up first and was just like whoa you know two or three shooting stars appeared and then kept watching and it just seemed like non-stop meteors and at the time I didn't understand that meteor showers were you know repeatable that they happen you know, at certain points in the year. And I thought we just happened to luck out and, you know, we're out on a rare night when one of these things happen. And um, again, not knowing what I really was observing, I think I also was out for, you know, a considerably good show uh, due to the rate of how many I was seeing. And I wasn't under dark skies. Like I was just outside of Regina, uh, mm -hmm. which is, uh, you know, a city of, I don't know what we're at now, 250,000 or something like that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's considerable light pollution, but it was, uh, it was a fantastic night. Cool. Yeah. How about you? When did you first see it? I was, I think I was 14, either 14 okay. or 15. Um, anyway, around that age. And I think we'd sort of tried to see them before, but of course I'm from, uh, the Maritimes and it's traditionally, uh, you know, it can be not great weather at that time of year. Um, from time to time. Although I think August is the best month to visit the Maritimes if you're, people are looking for a trip. It's, it's a great place to go. Um, for astronomy, maybe a little bit lower down your list. Um, just because sometimes we can get a lot of cloud that will, that will come in at night. And so I was, I was actually out uh, camping, although that's a bit of a stretch. We were like literally 
camping in uh, a friend's uh, backyard at their summer home and uh, like cottage, like farmhouse cottage kind of, kind of deal. And my mother had called and I was like, Whoa, like what's going on? Like, why is she calling? Cause I, you know, was somebody who was sort of out of my own quite a bit as a young child and involved in a lot of activities that took me away from home. And typically my parents get pretty used to me, weren't really, you know, trying to keep tabs with me too close, even at 14. Um, and so they called and they were like, Hey, you've got like, it's going to be clear tonight. You've got to go out and, and see these. Cause they knew I was interested in astronomy. So I went out and my friends really weren't that into it. And so they kind of went to bed and I was getting out every once in a while and, and looking up and, uh, I wasn't really sure what I saw in the Milky Way at first. And I thought maybe that was it. And then I, I, I think I did see some shooting stars. Then when I finally got home, my mom kind of grilled me on it. And, uh, and so uh, that, that's when I kind of realized that it was sort of the shooting stars that I was seeing. And I, I'd seen maybe three or four of them only because I, I didn't like, you know, sit out all night. Nobody else wanted to stay up with me. And you know, I was still uh, relatively young. So I wasn't really going to do that by myself. And uh Anyway, so I did see quite a few uh, that night. And then it was after that, I was like, okay, well, like, that's what it is. And I, really at that point, like around, like I said, around 13 or 14, I started kind of putting a lot of this astronomy business together in my head and saying, okay, well, like, these are shooting stars. And, you know, this is kind of what they are and reading about them and kind of getting interested in, in doing, doing astronomy as, uh, as an activity that I was more interested in than, than most of the other kids, clearly. So. <laughs> Yeah, that's so what, awesome. Yeah, so what is, uh, and I always feel like you know a lot more about meteors than I do because you actually collect, and this isn't in my notes or anything, but you collect um, actual meteorites, I think. Yeah, I've got a small collection of meteorites. Um, the ones that I, or, or what kind of got me into meteorite collecting, well, there's a few things. One is it's just cool that you have a rock that came from somewhere out in space. Mm -hmm. um, that's really neat. Um, some of these rocks or meteorites are exceptionally old. Uh, and depending uh, what you get, um, some of the meteorites may contain some of the, what's believed to be some of the original building blocks of the solar system. So mm. exceptionally old stuff. But what's really cool is when there's impacts on other planets, namely Mars and Venus, like the rocky planets, or our moon even, uh, there's debris that, uh, you know, it, it, when, when there's an impact, there's a massive release of energy. So there's debris from the planet uh, that will be kicked up into the atmosphere. And some of it actually leaves the gravitational pull of that planet and can end up on Earth. Hmm. So I, uh, I have three meteorites. Well, I have a number of meteorites, but three that I really, uh, uh, I guess, are kind of my showpieces in the collection are uh, one is from Venus, one is from Mars, and one is from the moon. Wow, and, just, you uh, should put them on your book that you just bought. <laughs> yeah, I probably should. <laughs> Take a photo of that and tweet it out. That's pretty cool. Okay, yeah, yeah, I can do that. There you go. Um, they're, more, work, they're, more work for you, just what you need. <laughs> more work, yep. Um, they're, they're fairly insignificant. Like they, they don't look, well, they're not very big. Um, yeah. And they've, uh, like, through... Various analysis, um, I guess the scientists are able to determine points of origin. But anyway, uh, yeah, I do have some meteorites and uh, they're, they're kind of fun. Yeah, so I guess, well, these probably didn't come from uh, a meteor shower though, because the meteor showers are, are uh, a little bit uh, different. And I think with, with those meteorites that you have, they would have produced like a pretty significant fireball. Is that correct? That's fair. Yeah, for sure. Um, one that I have is the Buzzard Cooley meteorite. Uh, oh, right. Which is from our home province. And uh, I don't remember the year that that one landed, but that was a substantial event. Like when, um, when that meteorite uh, came through, it came through at night and it turned night into day across yeah, think, a couple of provinces. I think it was 2007 or 2008 because it was just, it was before I moved out here. So, ah, yes, yes. Um, and that one deposited a, a lot of meteorites all over the place and uh, people went out collecting and then uh, yeah. was able to acquire one. Yeah. And we know some of those, some of those people quite well. So yeah, it's very, yeah. very, very cool. Um, so when you're seeing a, a meteor come in or, or maybe one of these, one of these ones like you have, what's the difference between that and a meteor shower? Is that a good question? 
I just kind of made that question up sort of based on my notes. <laughs> um, so the difference between like a meteorite, like that lands on the yeah, earth? Yeah, or just like a random meteor. Like, so you look up and you see uh, a meteor just on some random night or like a, like what's the difference between that and a night where you're, you're going to go up because it's the Perseid meteor shower, for example, like, like that are happening this week. Right. Well, I, I would say probably the biggest difference is the, uh, the amount of meteors that you'll see. Uh, you can see, you know, a meteor on any given night, but um, if you're out and there's not a meteor shower happening, if you see a meteor, it's likely the only one you'll see. Mm-hmm. Whereas with a meteor shower, you will see uh, many meteorites over the entire night and probably about two to four weeks prior to the apex and two to four weeks after the apex of the meteor shower. Okay. So yeah. it's quite a heavy period of activity. And I think those ones that you just see like one-offs, like on, a, on any given night, you, you know, like we go out to dark site, like when I was out a few weeks ago at a really dark site, probably saw like five or six over the course of uh, two or three hours. Those are just called, I think, sporadics or something like that. Okay. Yep. Yep. I think that I think that's that's what uh, people call. It. But the the Perseids they originate um, from uh, Comet Swift Tuttle. I think most of these meteor showers they actually originate from uh, comets uh, one way or another. And this one passed uh, in the vicinity of Earth in 1992, uh, but it won't be back. I think it comes back like every 133 years or something like that. Anyway, you can do the math. The next one, next pass of Comet Swift Tuttle is uh, 21. 26. You and I won't be seeing that one. Well, I plan to be here, but <laughs> we can make alternate plans. So. Yeah, that's a long time. You know, we've got uh, over over 100 years uh, left left to wait on that one. I thought I saw a Comet Swift Tuttle, but maybe I'm wrong. I was just really getting into astronomy then. I was still uh, just in school, but maybe, I think maybe I did see, that might have been one of the first comets I saw. Um, and why are they called the Perseids? Well, any meteor shower has a name associated with a constellation. And that's because, uh, most of the meteors that you'll see during that time radiate from that point of the sky, uh, you know, near that constellation. So in this case, if you're out, you'll see most of these, uh, meteors originating from Perseus Mm -hmm. in the sky. Okay. Cool. And Perseus is, uh, at this time of year, it's going to be rising in the north uh, east, correct? Yes. Correct. And, uh, you know, uh, an easy way to find Perseus is to find Cassiopeia, the W star or the W constellation, I should say. Um, you know, that's pretty prominent. Most people can identify it. Yeah. If you see, if you see Cassiopeia, you kind of look down into the left and that'll be the region of Perseus. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, that's a pretty good way to find it, actually. Yeah, most people, a lot of people will already know where Cassiopeia is. If not, that is, I would say, in the top uh, five or six constellations that, that people, or patterns that people could know. First, typically, it's uh, the Big Dipper and Little Dipper, uh, followed by, like, Orion and Cassiopeia, I would say. Those are probably your your top four. Yeah, I think you're right. So most of these particles, they're, they're in orbit. And I was reading this just this, this morning when I was kind of making the notes. Up. Uh, they've been in orbit around the sun for over a thousand years. Wow. I was like, whoa. So unless we intersect like a, like a stream. So every time the, the comet goes around the sun, uh, we intersect with a stream. And this comet has been going around the sun for thousands of years. Um, but many of the streams that we intersect are from pretty, pretty old uh, uh, orbits, uh, or they're part of that comet, which is, uh, you know, perhaps billions of years old. Um, so just, just to think, I was thinking about this, it's pretty wild to think about. So you look up and you see, cause what, what does a meteor look like when it comes in from the Perseid? Maybe we should maybe describe it for people. Like what do you see when you see a Perseid meteor? Well, it's, it's essentially a shooting star. Like you will see a streak of light, uh, across the sky, um, they will vary though in brightness and I guess maybe how far they travel. Um, uh, most of them will just be streaks of light and they're pretty uh, fast. You, these, per- yeah, 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 quite fast. Just like a, um, just like a moment in time kind of thing. Blink and you miss it almost. 
Yeah, like it's not, you, you would never mistake it for an airplane or a satellite or anything else. Uh, it's definitely the fastest thing up there. Yeah. And some of them may, may be exceptionally bright. And some of them you may even see a little bit of a tail kind of, tail maybe isn't the right word, but like you, you almost see like their path left behind. Uh, I think it's sky like for a little bit of time. So I've, I've looked at the, and I don't know those, any of that uh, written down here, but there's like either a smoke trail or an ionization trail, or maybe it's both. Do you know anything about that? Like I, like I've seen that before where you, you look and you see the meteor and it's almost like you, um, you get like that after image in your eye, but it's, but it's not cause they're not quite that bright. And then you take your binoculars and you look and you can actually see the trail. Yeah, I've heard it described as an ionization trail, and it sometimes way. to me it even looks greenish. Yeah, um, it kind of yeah, glows, yeah. It glows a little bit. Yep, yeah. yeah. and and it it doesn't stay for very long. Like no. if you actually get one of those, it it less you would time minute. its life in seconds. Yeah, yeah, less than a minute. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, those are those are really neat. Um, and apparently, this is one thing I was reading about uh, this morning as well is that there was uh, a filament of dust ejected off the comet. Uh, Swift Tuttle back in 1865. And that can actually give another peak uh, uh, a day or so before, which oh, really? I, yeah, I, I hadn't uh, heard about um, before this. So, but our peak activity really, maybe what it comes down to is people should go up between about, about now, like the 9th uh, and the 14th. So depending on your uh, particular uh, location, uh, you know, you should be uh, able to go out uh, after midnight, I think is usually about uh, about the best time to go out and look. Yeah, yeah. the The darker, the better. And unfortunately, the moon is going to be up. I think during this entire, or during the apex here of the Perseids, which is unfortunate. But it doesn't mean you can't see them. There will still be lots of meteors uh, to observe. Yeah, and I I think well, the moon, you know, the moon is is getting pretty far across now. Like it's it's near Venus, so you know, it's really in uh, almost like the twilight time. And I think for the most part, people are going to be out, maybe going out um, around midnight or so for a couple hours is probably your, your best bet to see lots. And I've certainly seen lots around, around then, but I think the, the typical sage advice is for people to get up early in the morning, go out and look, but of course the moon's going to be up at that time. You might still see some, but probably around midnight, I think this time for this particular shower, that's, that's probably your best bet to see uh, the most meteors from, from the Perseids this year. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. So, uh, and how many an hour, like, I, I know like they say like around 60 or more per hour, but you know, it's weird. Like on, on off years when we're not supposed to get one of the big streams, like I've gone out and hardly seen any more than like in a random night in a random night, you and I are observing. I kind of feel like we might see at a really dark site, maybe a meteor to an hour kind of an average. Yeah, about right? yeah. Something like yeah. that. On a, like, you know, around this time of year when the Perseids are kicking up. Yeah. For um, sure. And I, I've actually gone out on Perseid meteor nights and not really seen any more than that. Yeah. <laughs> but once, but, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say that's the <laughs> kind of the, uh, the, the disappointing or the frustrating thing with meteor showers is there's all sorts of predictions that are put out there in terms of how many you might be able to see per hour. Yeah, But the accuracy of those, you know, I don't know what it is, but I don't think it's very high. Like a meteor no. shower is almost something you just have to get out there and, and go see what it's like, because you might be rewarded with one where there's a couple hundred per hour, which is a very high rate. Yeah. However, you might also be out there when you're not seeing, you know, anywhere near that. <laughs> and and I did, you know, uh, I guess not have as good a luck. You know, some some years I saw, I think, 12 or 13 an hour. And then I was at a, a high mountaintop location about seven years ago and at the Mount Kobau Star Party. And I was, it was the night I arrived and I was beat from a really, really too long a drive during the day and big trip up the mountain. And we're at about like 7,000 feet or whatever it is up there. And... Uh, so yeah, I was just hanging out and we had like a sudden burst and I ended up seeing like that whole, like more than a hundred in an hour kind of thing. In fact, I think I saw probably two or 300 in an hour, maybe more. And uh, yeah, I've never seen that before. I've never seen it since it was pretty phenomenal. I've seen some outbursts, some outburst in uh, whenever it was 2003 or whatever the uh, 
the big Lyrid event was. Um, but, uh, but yeah, maybe, maybe a couple times I've seen a pile of them come in. Like I've had nights where I've seen like five or six come in over, you know, a few minutes and then nothing again for a long time. But that night we saw just meteor after meteor. It was just like, and we were sitting around a circle facing outwards from each other and, you know, multiple people are seeing multiple meteors uh, at the same instant. It was just ridiculous how many we saw. So almost, almost like if you didn't know what they were, it would be maybe a little bit scary, but you know that these things are the size of a grain of sand and they're just ending their thousands and perhaps billions of years of existence, the solar system, uh, very spectacularly as we see them come in. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point that they are very small and the bright ones that we were talking about just a couple minutes ago that leave sort of that greeny ionization tail. Uh, those are about 10 millimeters in diameter. So that's really that a, big. Eh? Okay. So like a yeah. centimeter or a third of an inch or something like that. Yeah. Those will be the brightest ones. Those yeah. Will okay. Be the brightest ones. Uh, okay. So these things are exceptionally small and essentially none of them reach the surface of the earth. No. Uh, they all burn up in the atmosphere. Yeah. You ready for some fun facts? Let's do it. I, I looked up when, when it was first observed in 3680. I don't know who it was that saw it, but I saw a reference somewhere that it was first observed in 3680. Wow. Uh, That's as, a long as, time ago. Yeah. It's probably, probably somebody um, saw a bit of an outburst, like a couple of ones that we've referenced, and then they, they made some sort of uh, remark. Um, and John Denver talks about it in his song, Rocky Mountain High, about his experience watching, uh, you know, uh, it raining fire in the sky. Ah, yeah, that's, that's a good way to describe it. Got to say, more of a punk rock fan than a John Denver fan myself. So I don't think, I'm barely familiar with that song. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this was one I've, I've heard of is, uh, is, is Catholics referring to it as the Tears of, of St. Lawrence. Um, knowing many Catholics, I, I have heard them refer to that. Uh, as being the Tears of St. Lawrence, um, which occurs on or about the August 10th anniversary of, and I'm, I'm not sure the whole, I'm not going to get into St. Lawrence. I really, St. Lawrence to me is a seaway. <laughs> so more than anything, yeah. <laughs> unfortunately. So I'm not going to try to get into any kind of interpretation of, of what it means, even with the notes. I don't quite understand. So, I'm not gonna do that. so how do you see them? Like what you described where it is in the sky, it's in the North uh, East. You said it's right below uh, Cassiopeia. Um, what else, what else do people need to do in order to see the Perseids and have a, have a good time seeing them? What, what should people do to prepare for that? Well, a meteor shower is probably the easiest thing you can go out and observe uh, because all you need are your eyeballs. Now there's some things you can do to make it, more comfortable and enjoyable. Mm -hmm. uh, number one, plan to be out for a couple of hours. Um, this yeah. isn't uh, this isn't something where you go have a quick look and and say you've observed it. You know, comet sort of wise, you could do that with, I suppose. Yeah. But this yeah. is something you should spend some time out and and take it all in. It's, it's, that was uh, sort of my mistake when I was fourteen. Was right, that right. I was like, okay, I got five minutes here while I'm outside the tent. And everybody else is getting ready for bed, and then. Did I see one? I don't know. Was that it? Did I see the meteor shower? I don't know. I'll find out later, I guess. But no. <laughs> yeah, the, the, a couple hours. Do. Yeah. The beauty of a meteor shower is the, the length of it, I think. Um, yeah. So prepare to be out there for a while. So that means get a comfortable chair where you can kind of lounge back and look upwards. Or an air uh, mattress. You, or an air mattress. Yeah, that's a great one. Um, some people also bring a sleeping bag so that yeah. you can crawl into the sleeping bag, get into your chair and then observe. Uh, because as you and I have mentioned, uh, before when you're out under a dark sky and the temperatures drop and you're not moving, uh, you know, 10 degrees Celsius could feel like minus 10 Celsius. It doesn't yeah. take long for you to get cold. So dress warm, bring a blanket, uh, maybe bring a thermos of uh, hot chocolate or, or some warm beverage to um, non-alcoholic. We, we should stress that, um, you know, uh, is that it's best not to consume alcohol when you're doing any of this astronomy stuff um, because it can uh, it negatively impacts your eye. And, and when you're under a dark sky, you're, you're using your eye to 
its greatest capability and and alcohol will reduce um, your ability to to see the faint things and and to be able to track on on stuff like you just can't quite focus uh, as well apparently I've never really uh, tried having too much alcohol while I've been doing astronomy, it really just doesn't mix well anyway. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. Um, So really that's all you need. Um, One other thing I'll mention is red lights. Stick with red lights if you need any light at all. Yes. Um, If you turn on your cell phone to take a look at your Twitter feed or Instagram, uh, you're going to ruin your dark eye adaption, which takes up to 30 minutes to get fully adapted. So Bring, bring the red lights if you need them. Leave the other ones behind. And if there's any astrophotographers out there, um, the, you know, you can get some pretty interesting photos that night too of, you know, streaks of light in your frame. Mm. Uh, because you're going, to, you're going to be doing astrophotography with exposures of probably anywhere from five seconds to much longer if you have a tracking mount. Um, now, for for meteor capture, I wouldn't really recommend a tracking mount because, you know, your camera will be moving. And if there's a meteor, I, you know, I think you'll end up with some strange distortion. So, uh, just place your camera on a tripod and probably do, you know, five to 10, well, maybe even five to 20 second exposures. And, uh, you're going to end up with a whole bunch of streaks of light, uh, in your frames that, uh, will be the Perseids. Awesome. That's Great advice. Yeah. Well, I think that's, I think we've covered it quite well, unless you have anything else to add. I'm at the end of my notes, but I, I know sometimes you have more extensive notes than I do. No, I think, yeah, we covered off everything that I would want to talk about uh, with the Perseids. Uh, this is the premier meteor shower of the warm weather months. Uh, this mm-hmm. is the best one that you can see. The best meteor shower in terms of the numbers of meteors that you'll see happens in December. So we'll probably talk about that one in December. But, you know, mm-hmm. at least in Canada, it's cold and, uh, you know, it's not the best observing conditions usually at that time of the year. For I've us. gone out and observed that one a handful of times. Mm-hmm. Not as much fun. No. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. Yeah, it's, it's pretty chilly. All right. Well, thanks so much, Shane. Thanks for uh, joining me today and, and doing this. And uh, yeah, how, how can people uh, get in touch? Maybe people will go out and take some. It would be really cool. You're starting to get enough uh, followers down, enough, enough downloads for, for uh, you know, sort of well over 3,000 downloads. It'd be really cool if like somebody went out and took a photo of a Perseid and sent that to us. And if they, if they did, how could they they get that photo to us? Well, they could tweet it out and tag us. We are at actual astronomy. Uh, you could email it to us. We are actual astronomy dot or sorry, actual astronomy at gmail.com. Cool. Um, if anybody emails us something, we'd give you full credit. Um, if we tweet it out, but, uh, yeah, if, uh, get out there, observe it. And hopefully some folks can, uh, see how many meteors they, yeah. or count how many meteors they see. And we're just doing this for fun. So there's, I don't think there's any commercial gain at this time. <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> All right. Excellent. Well, thanks so much, Shane. And uh, thanks everybody for listening. Thanks, Chris.